At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email CampbellLawReporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. You know, it's not every day that you hear about somebody who worked in a profession for 30 years and then listened to a voice and became a best-selling author. My next guest did just that, but it took him quite a while. He started out as a small-town attorney, and now he's a New York Times and internationally best-selling author of 20 novels with more to come. His books have been translated into 41 languages, and he has 25 million copies in 52 countries. But it doesn't stop there. He and his wife are dedicated to historic preservation and since 2009 have traveled across the country to save endangered historic treasures by raising money via lectures, receptions, galas, luncheons, dinners, and their really popular writers' workshops. To date, 3,500 students have attended those workshops and they have raised millions for historic preservation. Coming up on the Campbell Law Reporter, former trial lawyer and author, Steve Berry. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle. I have the honor of talking to uh, a magnificent author and uh, also people, an author who was an attorney beforehand. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Steve Barry. If you do not know him, you better listen. Mr. Barry, how are you? Doing fine. Thank you for having me. So I got introduced to your work uh, years ago with the Romanoff prophecy. That's how I discovered it. And I got hooked on your type of writing. I discovered in looking into your bio when I uh, found your novel, you were an attorney uh, before you became an author. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that transitioned you to becoming an author? Well, I, I've got my license to practice law in June of 1980. I graduated from the Walter F. George School of Law at Mercer University, and I moved down to South Georgia in a little town called St. Mary's, and I went to work for another lawyer there. Uh, about a year later, I went out on my own with, a, with another fellow, and we had our own practice, and I practiced for 30 years. I practiced till 2010, though I effectively closed the office in 2000, at the end of 2008. I used 9 and 10 to clean up some things and finish up. But uh, I, I actively, you know, was a lawyer for 30 years. I was in a small town. I was a, what I call a street lawyer, just whatever came in off the street. Uh, you, I, I like to say I did a lot of a little. That means like $50 fee, $100 fee or something like that. I did, I did a, a lot of those and they add up after a while. I had very few hourly paying clients and you worked mainly by the job and it's a small town. And, but I was mainly a trial lawyer. I went to court three, four days every week. I did thousands of divorces. I did uh, criminal defense, uh, litigation, you name it. I, I was 
mainly a trial lawyer, but you had to do the everyday things to pay the bills. But along the way there in 1990, about um, 10 years in, um, I decided to listen to that little voice in my head. There, I had a little voice in my head that was telling me to, to write. And it didn't say write a bestseller and sell a bunch of books and all that. That's not what it says. It just says, sit down, I need you to write. And I ignored that voice for a long time. And then I started in 1990, and that's when the process began for me of transitioning from a lawyer to a writer. Now, how so listening to that voice, I bet you just kind of knew it was there, knew it was there. And when you finally pulled the trigger on, on listening, you said that you didn't have your voice didn't say write a bestseller. What did you start writing? Well, it, it said just to sit down and write. If you'll sit down and write, I will not, I'll hush. I won't nag you to death. And I still have that voice to this day. And every single writer I've met and taught over the last 20, 32 years have the same voice. It's very common to writers. You're, you're born with the little voice in your head. But unfortunately, you're not born knowing how to write. There's a craft to it. There's a method to it. There's a right way and a wrong way. And you have to learn the craft of writing. And in 1990, I was a little too young and arrogant to realize that. And I wrote my first word in June of 1990. From the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word was 12 years. Wow. The 12-year process. I wrote eight manuscripts over that 12 years. Five managed to find their way to New York publishing houses. They were rejected a combined total of 85 times. Wow. I made it on the 86th time, 12 years after I started. So for me to get published was an extremely long and arduous process. I couldn't imagine. And, and to keep that persistence on being rejected that many times, that's a, that's a feat in and of itself. <laughs> it's a testament to the little voice because... I mean, I'm not a Superman. I quit like three times during that 12-year period. You know, saying this is silly. This is kind of, I'm, I'm just spinning my wheels. This is ridiculous. But after a few days, the little voice would start screaming again and say, okay, the pity party's over. Get back to work or I'm going to nag you to death every day. So it's really a testament to that little voice. As you are totally aware of in your legal practice, that type of writing is fundamentally different than any type of writing that you're doing now. So were you completely turned off by incorporating law type of subjects into your writing following that little voice, or were you just letting it flow and see what came out? Well, I did something in the beginning that I've since learned is very, very bad advice. And it's, you hear people say all the time, write what you know, write what you know. No, that is horrible advice. Do not write what you know. Instead, write what you love. Now, if what you know and what you love are the same thing, perfect. But for me, I knew the law and I knew all that kind of stuff. But I loved action, history, secrets, conspiracies. I, at that time, it was called a spy novel. Today, it's called an international suspense thriller. But that's what I loved. But in the beginning, I wrote what I knew and I wrote a legal thriller. And my very first manuscript, was just horrendous. It's just <laughs> a horrible, horrible, horrible manuscript. It's 170,000 words long, which will show you how horrible it is. 
a, a normal novel today would be between 90 and 100 or so. So that shows you how it's, it's twice as long as it should be. It's a terrible, terrible novel. But it's the only manuscript that I ever wrote that I actually kept. And I have a copy of it right here in my office. I have the original, in fact, right here in my office, right over where I see it every day. And the reason why I kept it is because it's the greatest thing I will ever write in my whole life. And the reason why is, is because I started it and I finished it. I have since come to know from teaching writers that about 90% of all writers do not finish what they start. It's a common malady, but I finished that thing. It was horrible, but I finished it. Uh, and I wrote it like a lawyer. Now remember, legal writing is designed to persuade. That is its purpose. So the, how do you persuade? You persuade by saying the same thing over and over and over and over. And you keep saying it over and over and over. That's how you persuade people by taking your arguments. I was taught early on, do not shoot with a shotgun, shoot with a 22, make a small hole with the 22 and shoot every bullet that you fire after that through that same hole. And that means say the same thing over and over and over again. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't work in fiction. Fiction is designed to entertain. And in fiction, you say it once. You don't repeat yourself over and over again. But unfortunately, I wrote that first book like a lawyer, which is why it's so long. It took me six years to get legal writing out of my system and get to where I could write in an active voice that is appropriate for fiction. And it took me a while to get that out of my system. It was really hard and I had to purge it out, but eventually I got rid of it. That is... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're taught in school to write completely different, just like you said, and to purge it out. I guess it's not going to go anywhere for a while. People got to grind it out. It's very difficult because lawyers write in passive voice. It's, a, it's almost a default thing. You go right to passive voice. That is the kiss of death in fiction, passive voice. You do not want to write any novel in passive voice. You want to write in active voice at all times. And I had to get that passive voice out of my system. And it took a very long time to do. Because you were wired to do so after your, you know, yeah. graduate studies and your, and your years in practice, that's what you knew. So in essence, you had to rewrite how, you know, your code book or your operation manual. Yeah, it's the example would be the contract was signed by John. That's a perfectly legitimate sentence, but it's passive voice. The active way to write that sentence is John signed the contract. For some reason, we're taught legally to write passively. And I don't really know why, because active is so much better, so much more immediate, and it's shorter. You use a lot less words to write actively. And in today's world, you have page limits and word limits and all kinds of things. And writing active makes much more sense. But Legal writing doesn't do that. I did a seminar for several years of how to put a little fiction in your legal writing. That's what I yep. call it. I, you know, and, and it was fun to, to teach the lawyers, why don't, why don't we go active? Why don't we get active? Let me show you how we can do this. Let me show you how it works. Let me show you how it's even better. And uh, 
you know, it was it was interesting to see the reaction of people when they go, well, really, I didn't realize that I wrote that way. Now I see what you say now. When when you're trying to mesh the two, how how do you bring out some creativity with legal writing? I know in my short legal writing experience in, in school, sometimes I have the feeling of that I'm writing what seems to be the me describing paint drying. It's not very <laughs> engaging with the readers that aren't going to, you know, that aren't in the, the legal profession. So how do you get there, put a little fiction in there or a little bit of creativity? How do you, how do you pry that out of people? Well, I had to show them the examples. For example, number one is quit writing passively, write actively, right? Right. As in, you know, instead of the contract was signed by John, John signed the contract. Signed is a much better verb than was. And, and you want good verbs. Tell a story with your brief writing. Tell a story with your complaint writing. Uh, what I did for many years when I was writing briefs and, and arguments, I didn't call them plaintiff and defendant. I called them by their names. I made it a story. I made it much more, you know, where the where they got a little closer where the reader got closer to the story. But I was also careful to always write to persuade. And it was okay to repeat myself in legal writing. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you should do that over and over again. So I, I teach them, I taught those tricks to get active voice, to personalize your parties or demonize them if that's what you want to do. You know, if the defendant, you know, if you're a plaintiff and the defendant is the defendant, you might want to, you might want to you know, keep the defendant the defendant, but your plaintiff is a name. Get, get it where the reader becomes closer. The fancy term in fiction is called psychic distance. And that's how far the reader is from the story. The closer you can get a reader to the story, the more they'll be engaged by the story. Now, a brief and a complaint and all of that stuff is just a story. It's all it is, but it's a story confined to the facts as you have them or as you know them, you have to stick with that. Fiction, I can make up everything as I go, but it's still a story confined within those facts. And I was trying to show them how to make it, you know, a little more entertaining, a little more uh, personal. I used uh, one sentence paragraphs. I'd start a, a sentence with and. I, you know, I would do things like that that, that get, gets the eye to move down the page more freely and easily. And that is the trick in fiction, to keep the eye moving down the page. And you can certainly incorporate those things into legal writing. And not lose that goal of persuasion that you're... Not a, not a drop. And you never do that. You must always persuade. Always, always. Where in fiction, my job is to entertain. I'm always there to entertain you. Yeah, you don't want to have a, a judge or a, a, a some other party being necessarily entertained by your case brief. It may not go so well. Well, you, it, it's okay to be entertained as long as you're persuasive. Right. I stand corrected. That is definitely right, right. true. As long as you're persuasive, you can also entertain them. But you have to be persuasive at all times. Where did this passion for writing come from? You had that voice that had been on your shoulder for quite a while. Where do you think that passion came from? You're born with it. You're, you're born with the, the little voice in your head. I'm firmly convinced of that. Every writer I've ever met tells me the same thing. They always had it. They just didn't recognize it. It takes time to recognize it. My mistake was I waited about 10 years before I recognized. I should have recognized it about 
81 or 82 and I didn't didn't so you're just born with it but as I said you're not born with knowing what to do with that little voice you have to go learn the craft of writing and you learn that by teaching yourself the craft of writing there's nobody in the world that can teach you how to write but there are people that can teach you how to teach yourself how to write and I was lucky enough to find some people like that and I learned how to teach myself the craft. Do you have some literary heroes that were uh, an inspiration on how you developed your writing as you became published? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, Robert Ludlum was great influence. Kussler was a great influence. There's no question. Those two had a lot, lot. Uh, Dan Brown's early books. I was a big fan of Dan's brand, Dan Brown stuff way before there was Da Vinci Code. Uh, and I, I had those books on my shelf. They were very much, they were excellent. James Rollins was another one. That was a great inspiration. So yes, I, I, I learned a lot from, from reading those, those folks. I read their books like textbooks. When you, uh, you mentioned earlier that you like history and conspiracies. So that goes into my next question of, do you just, to simplify it, think of what conspiracy you haven't touched on? Or do you, like how much research goes into it before you say, that's what I want to do? I wish it was that easy. It's unfortunately it's not. And it's getting harder and harder because they're getting harder and harder to find. Uh, you certainly, number one, want to find something that no one else has ever dealt with before. So you want to be original. And, you know, I look for something in the past, something relatively unknown, usually uh, that few people know much about but I'm hoping that you want to know more about it. And it has to be true. That's one of the things I can't make that up. My thing from history has to be real. Then there has to be a second element to that. Not only is that thing kind of cool and interesting and wow, I want to know more about it, but it also has to still matter today. It has to be relevant today. That that thing from 200, 300, 100 years ago still matters today and will alter something in today's world. I call the first part of it, that thing from the past, that ooh factor, that thing that kind of makes you go ooh, like Templars or Alexander the Great or Charlemagne, Napoleon, things like that, that you kind of go ooh with. The other thing I call the so what. Who cares whether that thing in the past existed? Well, that was 300 years ago. Why does it matter today? It has to matter today. So I have to find the ooh factor and the so what before I can even begin a novel. And once I do that, I then have to weave a tale around those things, you know, that's going to span about 90 to 100,000 words and is going to be entertaining and is going to you know, be a, a complete story. Every novel of mine, I use around 400 sources, somewhere in that neighborhood, three to 400 wow. sources. They're generally books, actual books that I buy at a gigantic used bookstore up in Jacksonville, Florida, that has a huge inventory and a huge history section. And I, I don't read 400 books now, but I read large chunks of 400 books. And I make my notes and I plot the novel and I go through that process, putting each one together. So I get I get introduced all the time as an historian. I'm not a historian. I, I'm not in any shape, form, or fashion an historian. But I am a guy that reads 400 books on one subject. And if you read 400 books on one subject, you will begin to realize how little we know about that subject. 
because those books contradict each other a lot. And so I have to make some reasonable hypothesis and guesses sometimes in order to put the plots together. And that whole process from the start to the finish is about 18 months to, to, to do that. That whole process, in addition to reading, do you get to travel and kind of see and visualize, or at least before pandemic, of course, were you able to go to various places that are in your books and uh, really get a feel of how you're going to put that uh, site onto your paper? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, There's at least one trip per book. Uh, sometimes there's a more than one trip, particularly with the American novels. I did five American novels, so I did multiple trips with those. But there's usually one trip a novel. The reason why I have the trip is not because it's cool to go there or whatever, because that takes time and money to go. It's because I have no choice. I have to go there. Well, I cannot find what I'm looking for in the books that I'm reading. There's stuff missing. Something's not there. It's not coming together. I can't figure this plot out. So I've got to go to the location. Um, Charlemagne Pursuit is a good example. I was stumped. I didn't have the plot. I didn't have any of that. I didn't, I mean, I was really at a a problem. And uh, I told Elizabeth, my wife, I said, we've got to go to Aachen, Germany. And she's a good sport. She says, okay, let's go. So it it was the middle of winter. It was cold. It was really cold. You know, it was cold. And we went over there and I spent four days in the cathedral at Aachen, which is the last standing building from Charlemagne's time. And I had to figure out a plot and I didn't get it till the last day. On the fourth day, I got it. And I it all came together and we came back home and I was able to write write the book. Uh, Columbus Affairs, another example. I was stymied. I said, we've got to go to Jamaica. We went. We spent four days in the jungles and all over looking for what I was looking for. The last afternoon for about three hours, we sat on the beach. It was the only time we got to sit on the beach the last day before we came home. So each of these trips are are designed, they're very stressful because I don't know what I'm looking for. If I did, I wouldn't have to go. Mm -hmm. I, I have to find it when I'm there. I know what I'd like to find and I know what I want and would be great if I could find it, but I, but I have to go and find it. Now that you're right. The last two years has been no travel whatsoever. I'm fortunate though, that I was ahead of myself. I had already done the trips for 22 and 23. Uh, 24 doesn't require a trip because I'm going to use places I've already been, but 25 will, and I'll, and I'll go to Romania next, uh, probably not next year, but in 23. I wanted to go to Romania in 20, and it was we couldn't. And it's probably not going to be safe to go there next year. But in 23, I will, because I want to do a novel set in Romania. And I, I want to go over and learn about the country. So we'll get back in the swing of things probably in 2023. You know, when you say, oh, yeah, we went to Jamaica, everybody thinks, you know, Pina coladas and 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 rest. No, you're, no. you're on a mission. <laughs> oh God, we were up in the rainforest climbing up this mountain. Uh, we were in. Uh, we went to the synagogue there because I needed to do that. We found some old cemeteries. We were all out in the countryside for four days, from about seven thirty in the morning to about six thirty seven at night. It was it was a lot, and we were gain, you know doing the research and getting together what I needed to write the novel. Uh, I try to tell people these are not fun trips. There's nothing. If 
people say all the time, I'd love to go with you. No, you really wouldn't. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a lot. And Elizabeth's a great sport about it. She, she keeps everything, keeps us going and we keep going and she knows we have to do it. We usually have a little time on the last day, you know, in the afternoon there, a few hours where we can kind of, okay, we can chill a minute now. Well, that's uh, at least you get to put a nice little bow on the trip because uh, if you're climbing up mountains and things like that, at least you can see the at the end there should be a little a little R and R hopefully before you get on another plane. We did. It was that though. Jamaica was particularly fun because we we sat on the beach there and ate some coconut shrimp and said, "Wow, you know this has been it's been wild." But you know, uh, we the great part is is when you're doing that, you found what you came for, so the trip was worth it. You don't want to go to a place and not find what you're looking for. That would be terrible. I've been very fortunate that I've never had a trip turn out like that. Yeah, that would be incredibly frustrating. I couldn't imagine what sort of like blank canvas you would have in front of you. So even if it's the fourth day, you're, you're, I bet you're frustrated, but you got it. I got it. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, you, you, you don't want to, you, you don't want to leave there without what you're looking for. And, the, and what helps me there is I spend a, several months before or weeks, depending on when I decide to go, before I go reading about the place in great detail and studying the places I think I'd like to see. And some of those pan out when we get on the ground and some don't. And then I always hire an experienced guide and person in the area who knows everything about the area real well, who can answer my questions and take me where I need to go. That sounds, uh, what you described sounds kind of, it's something that could just incredibly relate to legal writing. And I hate to go back on that, but it just, it just sounds a big portion of that type of preparedness and research. Yeah, it may not, you know, have what people would claim is, oh, you went to Jamaica or, no, or, or Romania or something like that. But it's, in essence, a similar type of thing where you need to do the, the advanced research on the issue that you're trying to write upon and then get in, in the trenches, so to say. Do you think that's a good parallel between it's those a, things? It's an exact parallel, to be honest with you, because when you get an argument in your brain, of where you want to go with a case and you've got the legal argument. I many, many, many times went into the law library and had no idea what I was going to find. And then I'd get down and I'd go to it. Now, in my days, we didn't have computers and keywords and all that stuff. We had to get the books out and look it up and, and shepherdize those cases and find the other cases and read one case onto another case. And it's very much a treasure hunt when you're looking for that, that legal argument and those cases. And there's that great feeling when you find that case right on point, you know, just, wow, this is right on point. This is my case. Got it. Now I got, now I got what I'm looking for. That's the same elation I feel when I find what I'm looking for. That's what I was just about to, to ask that elation. Do you think that's how law students and even professionals they get so bombarded by the same thing over and over again. How do you think that elation can get up so where it is fun and, and, you know, yes, it is a job and a purpose, but on how it's not just this mundane thing I got to write because I'm a practicing attorney or I'm a law student. Well, you've got to challenge yourself. Uh, take on cases that are challenging. I did, I did five cases of first impressions to the Georgia appellate courts, questions that had never been decided before. Those are exciting 
because you're making law. You know, you're at, you're creating law. You're making arguments that no one's ever made before. And, you know, challenge yourself. Do these things. Don't do the same thing over and over again. Take the hard case. Take the one that's tough. In every novel that I write today, I try to do one thing in that novel that I've never done ever before. Some technique, some craft, some something that I've never done before that challenges me each time so that they are not the same thing over and over again. And you can do the same in your legal practice. With your books, you're, you're, at, you're planning 25 and twenty number 21 is out right now? Uh, 21 uh, came out. Yes, it came out earlier this year. It's called The Kaiser's Web. It's out now. 22 is will be out June of next year. 23 will be June. I'm writing the book that will come out in 24 right now. Uh, and I'm thinking about and plotting 25. That's just uh, so cool to see on how, and you stay on that schedule because it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that you can't just lollygag and, and do what you would like and just take your time. No, it's, you got so much that you have to do, read, research. There's no, there's no uh, waiting. I need every day of 12 months to write that novel That's a- every day. Of, and it overlaps because I do six months of preliminary research before I start writing the novel while I'm writing the novel before. So there's an overlap, but I need every day of those 12 months to write the book. Yes. So I'm a little fortunate right now that I'm a little ahead of myself. COVID helped me there and I got a little ahead of myself. So that's, that's helpful, but I still have to write that book within a 12 month period. When you're doing the sitting down and writing, what is part of your like, do not do this type of thing? Like, is it do not worry about following certain guidelines? Do you just let it flow? Like, what do you, what do you try to avoid and accomplish when you first start actually writing? Well, you, 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 you try to avoid like, do not write passive voice. I mean, I never do that. Don't do that. There are things that are second nature now to me. I don't have to tell myself that anymore because I just automatically don't do it. But in in writing fiction, the first rule of fiction writing is there are no rules. You can do anything you want as long as it works. If it works, it's great. When I'm teaching writing, I encourage writers to, uh, to, to realize that there actually are some rules. And I want them to break the first rule for a while, that there are some rules and they need to adhere to. But they, you, you know, there's about 12 rules of writing that I teach and those stay in my brain over and over and over again. They kind of stick with me. And, uh, and, I, and I, they're, they're, they're second nature to me and I'm very careful about that. So what I just try to tell myself is sit down and let's go. Come on, let's go. And, you know, let's let's just put it down and keep going and don't be afraid to change it. Don't be afraid to throw it away and do what you got to do. Do whatever you have to do, but just keep going. Try to do that thousand words a day. If you can do thousand words a day, you'll get it. You'll get the job done in 12 months. That's pretty exciting to see you have a nice oiled ship and that that you're so dedicated to it. And I think that can echo and in, in almost universal on what sort of business opportunities or any type of opportunities that people have, having that kind of infrastructure is, is paramount to success. Well, writing is a discipline. It is not an obsession. You don't get obsessed by it, but it is a discipline. And you have to figure out what works for you, what discipline works. I'm a morning person, so mornings work good for me. You have to find out what your discipline is. 
Practice of law is a discipline. You have to get yourself organized. You have to learn how to manage your time. You know, you have to learn how to juggle more than one thing. I used to have 200 to 250 clients at any one time. You have to learn how to, to handle all of those and do the job. Writing's the same way. You're writing books. I'm juggling three books in my head at one time. And you learn how to manage that. It's just like anything else. It's a discipline. It requires some dedication, not some obsession, but it does require some attention to it. And uh, for those that uh, don't know, you are very uh, known for a certain character uh, in your novels, at least one big one. There's uh, uh, other ones, uh, of course, that have a lot of uh, appearances in your in your novels. Cotton Malone. Yes. What uh, What was the inspiration? Like, how did how did that come about? He was born one evening in Copenhagen. I was eating dinner up there, the Cafe Nordon, which is in Hybro Plods, which is a square there. It's a lovely square. It's got a beautiful buildings around it. And it was, I was sitting up there. The window was open. It was beautiful. It was a nice May evening, chilly, a little chill in the air. It was great. And he just sort of popped in my brain. And I, he said, I'm, he's going to be a retired Justice Department agent. He's going to live right here. His bookshop, he, he's going to own an old bookshop. It's going to be right over there on the square. And it's a, it's a Danish porcelain shop. And I just changed it to his bookshop. And I wrote down on a napkin some things about cotton. And I came back home and I wrote uh, a novel called The Templar Legacy. And I created Cotton Malone. And that was my fourth book. And that was kind of my breakout book. That's the book that kind of kicked me up a notch. To this day, The Templar Legacy is my biggest selling novel. Uh, but there's where Cotton was born. And, and I wasn't, by this time, I wasn't young and arrogant anymore. I, I kind of learned how things were really hard and difficult. I was much more humbled. I, and so I wasn't foolish enough to think that I was going to get to write you know, 17 novels with this guy, which is where we're coming up on now. 16 are out, 17th will be out next year. I just wanted to do one. And maybe if we could do another, that'd be great. So I just used me when I created Cotton. I just used my personality and just used me in there. It was just simpler. And I didn't have to go out and find this character. I just made him me. And, uh, and, it, and he caught on. And now here we are, it's 16 books later, 17 years, he's he's done very well. I have to uh, uh, say an unbiased or actually fully biased opinion. The Templar Legacy was amazing. I thoroughly enjoyed that book and all the books that I have read uh, of yours. Unfortunately, I've uh, had to put a lot of my for entertainment reading to the side because of law school, but I, I do have some uh, waiting for me. And the one on the side of my bed is actually the Columbus Affair. So when you said uh, your trip and your research, now I get to put another set of imagery in my head when I when I crack that one open. It's going to be um, exciting. And now even more with Cotton Malone and his bookshop, the imagery floods into my head. And, and it's just so cool to see how that came about. You're at the cafe and the window was open and you, it's just super detailed in your mind. And, and it's just great. And I remember law school myself during those three years, I read almost no fiction during that time because you're reading 200, 250 pages a night, seven nights a week. And not only that, you have to remember all of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you have to pay attention to all of them. They're just not light reading either. It's very heavy reading. So I sympathize with you, but uh, I will say that it does get better. 
as you get out. You'll be able to have a little time to, to enjoy some reading. Well, that is good. And I know one thing that you uh, enjoy uh, outside of writing for you is history. And you and your wife started History Matters, a foundation. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we wanted to give back a little bit because we noticed something when we were traveling all over the place that, you know, historical preservation is really tough out there. There's just no money for it anymore. There's certainly no local funds and no public funds. There are very few. It's really up to the communities themselves and individuals and private businesses to to deal with it. So we created History Matters as a way to raise money for historic preservation. And what we would do is uh, someone would contact us. Like uh, there was a cemetery up in North Carolina that contacted us and they had uh, a tornado had come through and done an enormous amount of damage to the historic cemetery there, dating back to the Revolutionary War, in fact. And uh, they needed money to, to, to repair, well, they needed, I forget what it was, $20,000, $30,000 to do the repair work that needed to be done. So we, uh, we went up there, we did a writer's workshop, and this is one of the main ways we raised money. We teach writing. Uh, we do a four-hour seminar. I do three hours on the on writing, uh, the craft, and Elizabeth does an hour on the business of writing. She owns her own uh, publishing and marketing company, so she's very knowledgeable in this area. And you buy your way into the workshop with a contribution, $150, $200. All the money that we raise goes to the, to the event to, to do it. We don't charge to come. We pay our own expenses. And we raised the money they needed to fix the cemetery. And we've, we've raised about $2.5 million for about um, around 100 projects That's uh, around the country. They're small projects. We do small things. We don't do giant things. But we have done the Smithsonian Institute, the Mark Twain House, the Abraham Lincoln House in Illinois, um, we, uh, the Rare Book Room at the Library of Virginia. We've done quite a few, uh, some institutions. And uh, it makes a difference. And I'll give you an example of what taught me that. We went out to California and we did an event at a local museum in an old Victorian mansion. And it wasn't that well attended. We only raised about $6,000. And I felt really bad about it because it just didn't raise enough money. And the guy who was in charge of the museum was just ecstatic. He says, no, 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 no. You don't understand what just happened here today. And I, I said, no, I, I don't. We, we should have raised more money for you. He said, no, no, you don't understand. There's a hole in the roof. It's going to cost $4,000 to fix that hole in the roof that we didn't have. When we get that hole fixed, it's going to solve a lot of problems around here. So a little bit of money can go a long way because that hole in the roof was destroying that building. And they were able to patch it up, and that provided the time they needed to do what they had to do to get the rest of it done. So a little bit can go a long way. So we've done a lot of that. We have not done anything in 20 or 21, probably will not go back in 22. It'll probably be 23 when we start going back, because History Matters is a very hands-on, right up there, in-your-face kind of thing. And it can't be done long distance. Yeah, and you, you got to be interacting with people in person and not um, just over a screen. I, I hear a parallel to History Matters and helping those small projects with what you did in your practice. You let, you know, you helped everybody coming in, big, small, everything. And it kind of just echoed in there to, and my point being, everybody, no matter what the size, can need help. And it goes a long way. Yep. Um, I took everything that walked in that door other than 
bankruptcy and workers comp. That's the only two things I never did. And they're highly, they're highly specialized. But other than that, everything that came in the door, whatever walked in, that's exactly, that's the way you do it. And that's what I was a street lawyer. I was just a general practitioner and um, I never worked at a big firm. I always just did my thing. Now, one of the things here, uh, as we uh, wrap up, one of our big things that we follow at uh, Campbell Law is leading with purpose. And we hear the purpose of History Matters and the purpose uh, that that organization and you and your wife have. But what does that phrase leading with purpose mean to you? And then how can, with your experience as a lawyer, what leading with purpose advice can you give um, our student listeners? Well, I mean, it, it, it says it all right there, leading with a purpose. You're, 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 you're a lawyer. You're practicing law. Your job is to help people. And that might be in, in some cases, you help a corporation, you help whatever, if you're going to be a corporate lawyer, if you're going to be an in-house counsel, you're going to be in a big firm that does insurance defense, your job is still to help your client. And it's to do it in a practical, ethical, and professional manner. There, you know, And I'll, I'll be the first to say, when I was a young lawyer, I was brash and arrogant, and I could be very unprofessional and very, you know, I could, I could be a real pain in the butt. Yeah. And, and, and I look back on it now, but as I got older, I learned and I learned that that's not the way you do things. That's not the way you handle things. You treat people with respect and you treat people, you know, you know, professionally and you deal with something, uh, you deal with each issue as it comes up and you always conduct yourself in the highest manner possible. Uh, you owe that to your client. You owe that to yourself. And, you know, it's, it, 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 nothing is worth taking a shortcut. Nothing is worth, you know, uh, not being totally prepared. When I walked into a courtroom, there was no one in that room that knew more about that case than me. And that's the way you ought to be. I wasn't the greatest student in the world. I wasn't the best student in the world. I, I was I, none of that. But if I had enough time and you left me alone, I can outwork you. And that's the way you ought to be that you can, you can put it down and you can work it through and you can be the smartest guy in that room on that case. And that'll go a long, long way to, to, for success. And uh, as we uh, wrap up here, uh, Mr. Barry, thank you very much for your time. Uh, as we've discussed, you're a very busy man. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on and telling us about History Matters, your writing, your process, a little bit about Cotton Malone. Um, I have two final questions for you. What uh, exciting news uh, do you have, if any, that you can share um, about Cotton Malone? Is it just that he's uh, going in, into his more adventures? Do you have any exciting news for us potentially? Well, I do. Uh, Cotton's going to take a year off next year. He's going to take a little rest. And I've created a new character, uh, a man who works for the United Nations. It's the same kind of book, Action, History, Secrets, Conspiracies, but it will be a stand uh, a standalone, maybe a series if he catches on. Uh, so it'll be my fifth standalone that I've written, my 22nd uh, book and my fifth standalone. Uh, and it will be... Uh, uh, it, it will deal with the most stolen and vandalized work of art in history. And I'm going to let your listeners kind of Google and figure out what that might be. There you uh, go. But uh, he, it'll be, it's an interesting story. It's going to, it's a pretty cool story. It's called the Omega factor. It'll okay. be out June of next year. 
Cotton will come back in 2023 with an adventure that's going to be in Germany, set in Germany. And then he'll be back in 2024. And then I'm doing three new books on Luke Daniels, who's a secondary character in my novels. And he's going to get his own series. And I'm writing those with the great thriller writer, Grant Blackwood. So there'll be three Luke Daniels books over the next three years. So over the next three to four years, I've got uh, a standalone, two cottons and three Luke Daniels books coming. Oh, that's exciting. And, and, for me, being selfish here, I'll have more time to to read these. Uh, I'll be out of school by then. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Last question as we wrap up. How do people learn more about you, find more of your novel novels and writings, connect with you? How do people do that? Uh, you can just go to my website, steveberry.org. Every single thing is there about me, the books, History Matters, everything. And we also have a Facebook fan page that you can go to as well. Very nice. Uh, Steve Berry, everybody, number one internationally best-selling author. The one that's currently out right now is uh, The Kaiser's Web. And uh, go to steveberry.org. Uh, Mr. Berry, from one Steve to another, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best and stay safe, sir. You too, sir. Thank you. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.